I've been in ministry now for a little over 20 years, and in that time, I have officiated a lot of weddings. But a couple of weeks ago, I officiated a wedding where I experienced a first, and not much surprises me in weddings anymore, but I experienced a first in that the bride and groom had written their own vows, which in and of itself is sort of rare these days to write your own vows. But not only had they written their own vows, but their vows were more than 20 minutes long in the wedding. I'm telling you, they had a lot to say to each other. And the, the wedding was for a friend of mine, a family from the past, and she was marrying a young man from Guatemala. So the vows were in both English and Spanish, and, and again, they had a lot of words of love to say to each other. But I was especially taken by the words of the groom to the bride, because let me tell you, fellas, he put all of us to shame with his Latin words of love that he wrote for his bride. They were absolutely beautiful. Things like, Soy la luna y eres mi sol. I am the moon and you are my sun. I mean, goodness, it was just dripping with love as he, he read his vows. But I thought as he was speaking, and as I often think during wedding vows, it's one thing to speak these words on your wedding day when everything's so perfect and everything's so wonderful and, you know, we're going to be the couple that never has any problems and we say all these words to each other. Saying those words and then living those words of our vows out in our marriages are two very different things, right? It's one thing to, to speak words of love. It's another thing to show love. And if that's true to our spouse... How much more is it true when it comes to God? How do we show God that we love him? I, mean, I hope that when we come into a, a worship gathering like this, that it's on our hearts, that we would speak and that we would sing, and that in some way we would demonstrate our love for God and the things that we say and the things that we practice in worship. But how do we show God that we love him outside of singing and outside of speaking? In what ways do our lives and our actions demonstrate that, that we're showing God we love him? Well, one way we show God we love him is through true and proper worship. And yes, true and proper worship can happen in a worship gathering. But Romans 12 says our true and proper worship actually is presenting our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. True and proper worship is more than singing. It is presenting all of ourselves to the Lord in a way that we pray will be holy and pleasing to him as, as a living sacrifice. We also show God we love him through relationship. Just like with our spouse, just like with our children, just like with those we love, we show our love through relationship. And if we don't communicate, if we're not active in that relationship, then, then the love that we show is going to be effective. We show God we love him by loving others. As Christ's love compels us to love our neighbors. We show God love by caring for what God has created. When God created the first human beings, he said to them, one of the ways you're going to show me that you love me is by caring for that which I have made and being good stewards of it. And we show God love as James returns to here at the beginning of chapter 2 by obeying the royal law. He talked about this in chapter 1. Don't just hear the word only, do what it says. And walk in the law that gives freedom, as he talks about here, the royal law. That it's one thing to say we know it, 
It's one thing even to speak it or to say it out loud. It's quite another to walk in it and to do what the word says. But James returns to the royal law and he talks here in these first verses about more than just knowing the path, he talks about walking the path. I hear echoes of Micah 6, 8 in these words from James. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk. To walk humbly with your God. In living out the royal law, which expresses itself in one way by loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, James says if we want to honor God and be faithful to his royal law, it will not happen if we show favoritism. Favoritism does not reflect the heart of God. And in fact, favoritism is sinful. James chapter 2 verse 1 is one of only two places in this letter where James uses the name of Jesus. He uses Jesus' name in the beginning and the only other time he uses it is right here. And it's as if James is saying as he begins this teaching, this issue of favoritism is so important that it is a matter of being Christ-like. If you want to be Christ-like, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Some of your translations will use the word partiality, either here or maybe later in this text. In other passages that sound similar, you'll find this word. In Greek, it's actually one of the longest and hardest to pronounce Greek words that, that we have in the New Testament. In fact, I tried to pronounce it in the 830 service, and I'm still pretty good at my Greek pronunciation, and I botched it completely, to be honest. So I'm not even going to try it in this service. It's a big word. It's a hard word. It's a word that stands out. And what the word literally means is to, to take someone's face and to lift it. So to show favoritism or partiality in one sense is to lift someone's face up and to elevate them. But if we think about that on the opposite side, to, to not show favoritism or to show favoritism against someone in favor of someone else is to lower their face, to, to make their face not lifted up but downcast. This is the kind of relationship that James is describing when he talks about favoritism, a relationship towards others. Either we elevate them unduly or we lower them, we, we debase them, we dehumanize them unfairly. And for the follower of Christ who seeks to be Christ-like, this kind of favoritism has no place. I've asked this question on multiple occasions in the last few years to myself, to our staff, to groups of leaders. I've asked it in here before. The question of who would not be welcome here in our church. Who, what kind of person, what type of person would, would we find ourselves in a situation with as a church where we'd be tempted to show favoritism? And who would we, because of either their appearance or what appears to be their lifestyle or their demeanor or whatever category we might want to come up with, who would not be welcome in our church and why? Why wouldn't they be? I found that one of the best ways to diagnose the answers to that question is just to listen to the ways we talk about people and different kinds of people. 
And I would say that here at South Tulsa Baptist Church, we do a pretty good job of this. And this is actually an area where I've even seen improvement, that we, we seem to be more careful in our conversations and in our leadership circles about the way we talk about people. The way we talk about people says a lot about the way we ask the question, who is my neighbor? And so when we're talking about who's welcomed here or not, sometimes it's just the way we speak about people that tells us all we need to know. James addresses this with his own example. And we've got lots of kinds of examples we could turn to in our own understanding, but James just simplifies it. And he says, what would it look like in the synagogue, in the assembly, in the community of faith, if at the same time a very wealthy person and a very poor person came in? A man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, signifying both rank and wealth, if you, if you read back to some of the first century documents that come out of Jewish philosophers, you'll find oftentimes that, that often in a humorous way, they describe the way some of the wealthy people would dress when they'd come into the synagogue. They'd say even on the, the hottest days in Israel, you would see the wealthy wearing the thickest robes, long flowing robes with, with lots of bright colors to demonstrate how wealthy they were. They also would demonstrate this, as James says, with jewelry, there was a Jewish saying that said, let none of your joints be left uncovered with gold or with jewels. I used the word bling in 830, and the teenagers again corrected me and said, nobody says bling anymore. I said, these, these guys wore a lot of bling when they came in. They said, no, they, you need to say they were dripping. I think that's the right term. <laughs> all, all the teenagers roll their eyes. I'm okay with it. I'm at an age now where I actually enjoy it. Whatever case, let none of your joints be uncovered with gold or jewels so that everyone will know how wealthy you are. It's ostentatious. It's showy. It's a display. And James says, imagine someone comes into your worship gathering dressed like that, and then in stark contrast comes a poor man in filthy old clothes. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a prime seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down here where our feet go. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? And have you not become judges with evil thoughts? James says. This, this kind of favoritism where we decide that some people are better than others in our midst. James says that kind of temptation, much like he talked about in chapter 1, doesn't come from a place of purity it comes from evil thoughts it, it, it comes from the temptations we have that that are all about ourselves and what others can do for us and not viewing people the way that god views us which each and every one of us rich or poor no matter our background no matter where we're from no matter what we look like no matter where we grew up how we grew up what we've experienced god says about each and every one of us consistently you are made in my image and I love you. And I love you so much that I gave my only son that he might become a sacrifice for your sins and your sins and your sins by way of the cross. But when we look on others with favoritism, we place ourselves in the seat of judgment and we do so with evil thoughts, not submitting ourselves to the true judge, not surrendering to his will, but simply seeking our own. Not showing favoritism, in addition to being Christ-like, also reflects 
God's character. We read about this in our Old Testament reading a moment ago in Leviticus. Consider also the words of Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves know what that was like. You were foreigners in Egypt. If our character reflects his character in our attitudes, in our actions, then no matter a person's level of wealth or status or rank, we show no favoritism, whether to the rich or to the poor, but we love our neighbor as ourself, as Leviticus said, because that's how God has commanded us to live. This is the royal law, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. In addition to being about God's character, what James was writing, which as we've talked about throughout this study, is so practical. So much of, of what James writes to the churches is godly wisdom. And it, it's so practical about putting our faith into practice and doing what the word says. Part of this was about their relationships within the church. And it was about their unity in the church. That they would not allow favoritism or partiality or any sort of, of injustice or unfair relationships to break the bonds that, that had been brought together through the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a place up in the northwestern tip of Washington State that you may have heard of, some of you may have even visited, called Peace Arch Park. Peace Arch Park actually straddles the border between the United States and Canada, and it's one of the only places in the world that in a very small space, no matter your citizenship, no matter your paperwork, you can be on both sides of the border of two different nations and you can spend time with those who are coming from either side. From sunup to sundown in Peace Arch Park, you can enter that space as long as you, as you enter with, without bringing any danger and you can spend time with people who have come from the border of Canada. I heard about this from a family who's begun very faithfully attending our English classes from Iran. They've been here from Iran for many years, but they have other family in Iran who are not able to enter the United States. But they were able to get a tourist visa for a couple of weeks to Canada. And so to visit their family from Iran, the family that, that comes to our classes drove up to Washington and they met them in the park and they had this beautiful, wonderful, special day together. Again, there are very few places in the world today where you can have that kind of experience. But what I love about it is the picture of elevating our shared humanity above the things that divide us. It's not that borders aren't good things and laws aren't good things, but sometimes isn't it good to just be with people from a different place, a different background, and just to have that moment where you say, we are all God's creatures and we're all made in his image and what we have in common is our shared humanity. James is saying, in a very practical way, don't let the things that divide human beings from one another on earth destroy your relationships that are supposed to reflect what it's like in heaven. Or we might say it this way in the church, don't let things like status and rank in earthly kingdoms ruin relationships that are supposed to reflect the kingdom of God. 
And in the kingdom of God, there are no second-class citizens. Because of that, don't ever be guilty of treating someone in, in your worship gathering, in your community of faith, as if they are lesser than anyone else. For all they were facing in the first century through, through persecution and oppression and ostracization and all those things, what a practical way for James to remind them that in the body of Christ, we are one through Jesus Christ. There's no place for favoritism in the church. On the contrary, God, as Scripture teaches time and again, lifts up the poor and the neglected. And he has chosen them, as James says, to receive a great inheritance. And because of that, not dishonor them, James says. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? When we see the word poor in scripture, yes, oftentimes it means economically poor, but we should see it bigger than that. It's more than just those who are, are, are lacking in resources or in finances. Oftentimes the word poor in scripture simply refers to those who are looked down upon or to those who are marginalized, or to those who are oppressed, or to those who are persecuted, or those who simply, we might say, are beaten down by the world. That's what the word poor means. In the economy of God's kingdom, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, as Jesus says. And in the same way, James says, has not God chosen those who are poor, those who are neglected, those who are beaten down by the world, has he not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you, when you show favoritism, when you elevate others above others, you have dishonored the poor. And he says there in verses 6 and 7, and you have dishonored the poor in favor of those who exploit you and those who drag you into court. And those who are blaspheming the noble name of him who has called you, the one to whom you belong. You're not only neglecting and, and, and showing favoritism and partiality against those of lower status, but you're choosing in favor of those who are not only not for you, but they're not for the Lord either. They're blaspheming the noble name of Jesus Christ to whom you belong. God lifts up the poor and the neglected. He has chosen them to receive a great inheritance. So not only do not dishonor them, do not dishonor God's name by dishonoring them. Because to do so is sin. But there may have been some among them who were thinking, well, sure, maybe dishonoring others is a sin, but it's, it's the kind of sin that's really no big deal. If that was the case, if that was their thinking here james returns to the royal law and he says whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it i'm going to turn things over to seth spoo for a moment and he has prepared as he's sought the lord this week to teach us on these verses and so as seth comes would you open your heart to what the lord has to say through his word through seth thank you i want to start by really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. 
He starts with one of the greatest commands that we are taught in the Old Testament and by Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. The first greatest commandment being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All commandments, all laws rest on the shoulders of these two verses. Now he calls it the royal law, the superior law, the, the, the utmost law. However, to a Jewish reader, when they read royal, they read the, the royal law, they recognize that as the king's law. That is the king of the country, the king of the land, said, whatever he says goes. And so when they see the royal law, they think to themselves, oh, this must be important. We need to listen to this. On the other hand, in verse 9, if you show favoritism, you sin. Favoritism comes from a place of pride. It comes from a place of exalting oneself, putting others before someone else. In the kingdom of heaven, when we're with Jesus one day, we're all going to be equal. We're all going to be on the same plane, except God himself will be above us. So why should we behave, why should we act any differently on earth than we would in heaven? We are living in the kingdom of God, so we should act like it is so. Loving your neighbor means humbling yourself and putting others before yourself. That's the character of Jesus. That's the character of God. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector that went down to the temple to pray. He says in Luke 18, verse 9, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I love what Jesus says at the end. I'll read it one more time. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, this Pharisee went to the temple, seemingly doing everything right. He gives a tenth of what he has. He fasts. He follows all the commandments, all 613 commandments uh, in the Old Testament, in the Torah. And he comes before God, and he he stands himself up on a stool and, and he says to God, you know, I'm, I'm better. I'm better than everyone else that, that doesn't know what they're doing. The evildoers, the adulterers, Lord, have favor on me. But then you have the tax collector, a sinful man, a liar, a cheater, cheats the Jewish people out of their money, out of their income. And he comes before God and he stands at the back of the temple and can't even look up to heaven, can't look to God and says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Please have mercy on me. And God recognizes that, and God justifies him through that. At the end of verse 9, he says, James says, We are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking them all. Now that seems a little bit unfair. If we only break one law out of the 613 you know, possible laws that we have, why are we guilty of breaking all of the laws? Why are we complete lawbreakers? Jimmy Garoppolo was a backup quarterback to Tom Brady from the seasons of 2014 and 2017 on the New England Patriots. 
In 2015, the Patriots were in the Super Bowl, but in that entire season, Jimmy Garoppolo threw four passes for one completion for six yards. But at the end of the season, when the Patriots beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, he got a ring. Well, why is that? He only participated in such a small amount. Why does he get a ring? Well, because he participated and because he was on the team, he was allowed the satisfaction and the glory of a ring. Now, not in the same way as, as glory and satisfaction because we don't get that when we break the law, when we sin, but in the principle of it, when we break just one piece of the law, just one part, we are guilty of it all. We have one lawgiver. We don't have multiple gods, multiple people telling us what's right and what's wrong. We have one lawgiver that gives us the whole puzzle, that gives us the guide on how we should live our life. In Romans 7, Paul says, um, talks about the law being holy and good. He says in verse 12, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. To that which is good then become death to me by no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Sin might be recognized as sin. That's why God gave us the law. That's why the law is important, is because through the law, we might know what is wrong. Now, as Christians, why is it important that we follow this law? Some Christians might tell you that, oh, well, through Jesus, through our salvation, why do we need to? You know, we, we accept Christ when we were eight or nine years old. We're clean. We're righteous. We're righteous in God's eyes, right? We are still tempted by sin. We are still tempted by the devil with sin. If we are justified by faith and not works, as Paul says in Ephesians, why should we follow him? It's because Jesus did in his example. He says in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So how do we practically live out the law through and like Jesus? And his instruction is right here in the gospel. He lives out the perfect life, the perfect example of what it is like to live a life through God. And his perfect sacrifice of death, three days later raised again, we carry our crosses daily and follow the law just like him so that one day we have the hope that we will get to see him again in heaven. I'll turn it back over to Eric to finish up the rest of our passage. Thank you, Seth. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Why is it such a big deal to, to look at others in, with partiality or to commit the sin of favoritism? Because James says on the most basic level, all sin is sin. But also because the royal law which Jesus gave us, the law of the King of Kings, which he also modeled, treats a neighbor as a neighbor, loves a neighbor no matter their, their status, their rank, their level, as one would look at his own self and love himself or herself. It's the royal law that says love your neighbor as yourself and in, 
doing this, James says, if you do it, you are doing right. Because what we remember, the only reason we're able to love our neighbor and to love our neighbor through Christ is because Christ so loved us and he gave himself for us. To close out this text with verses 12 and 13, James reminds them of the great mercy that they have received from God. And those who have received great mercy from God should be people of great mercy towards others. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law, the law that gives freedom. In your words and actions, live like you someday will answer to God for your life, because you will. In your words and actions, live as if someday you will give answer to God for your life, because you will. And judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This week, you're going to have lots of opportunities to think about the word freedom. But remember, as followers of Jesus... As sons and daughters of the king of kings, as members of the royal family, as Seth said, all on the same level, because we're all God's children and we are his people, there is no freedom greater than the freedom that we have in Christ. And the freedom that we have in Christ, the law that gives freedom because Christ has fulfilled the law, is a freedom that sets us free truly to the deepest level of our soul. We don't have to be afraid of the law. We don't have to be afraid of the word. We don't have to be afraid of standing before God in judgment if we are in Christ because his righteousness has become our righteousness and he has set us free so that we are free indeed. Amen? It's because Christ fulfilled the law that the royal law gives us freedom freedom to live out mercy as God has given us and been so merciful to us because mercy triumphs over judgment which means again coming back to the practical we can't help but to be merciful to others when we consider the great mercy of God it means living with mercy towards our family it means living with mercy towards our neighbor it means living with mercy towards our brothers and sisters. It means living with mercy towards people with whom we disagree. It means living with mercy towards people we don't even like. And it means living with mercy towards people who have wronged us. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. So how do we show God that we love him? Well, God loves us so much that he demonstrated his love in this way for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be free so that we, we might become the righteousness of God. And we show God we love him through true and proper worship, offering ourselves fully as a living sacrifice, 
through our relationship with him, through loving others, through caring for what God has created. And we show our love for God by being faithful to obey the royal law, to not be hearers of the word only, but to do what it says, to put his kingdom first and to love our neighbors, all of them, because this is the royal law. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Today, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you, even though you're a lawbreaker, just like me. He is faithful and just to forgive you, and he will purify you from all unrighteousness. Would you bow your heads and join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? And as our ministers make their way forward, and we prepare here in just a moment for a time of response. This is an opportunity for you to come to Christ and to be set free. Maybe you need to do that for the first time. Maybe you have never truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believed upon him and the salvation he's brought us on the cross, that he rose from the dead. And if you've never placed your full trust in Jesus Christ, then you are still in chains because of your sin. Maybe the freedom that Christ would bring you today is the freedom that he brings in salvation, that you can be forgiven, and that you can experience the righteousness of God and walk with God forever. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but the freedom that you need today is just the freedom from whatever is weighing you down, and whatever as you came in today, is, it's, it's got you wrapped up in chains. You might need to confess a sin. You might need to... To, to open your hands as a sign of saying to God, I'm giving this to you, whatever it is, whatever is, is weighing you down or consuming you today. Maybe you feel like you're drowning and you just need to reach your hand up to, to the Lord and say, say, God, I need you. I need you desperately today. Whatever freedom you need in Christ, we find that freedom. And in this last opportunity we have in worship, would you surrender your heart to him fully? And trust that he will set you free. God, we give you this time for your glory and for your name. We pray that you'd speak to every heart. And we pray that as we have lifted up the name of Jesus today in so many ways, Lord, that you would draw people unto you. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen.